from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 1st. Today, the shakeup in the former president's legal team. Why a new vaccine could be a game changer. And what's in an owl pellet. Last weekend, the lawyers who were supposed to represent former President Trump in the impeachment trial parted ways with the president late on a Saturday night. Josh Stassi reports on politics for The Post. He had assembled a team of five lawyers from South Carolina with the help of Senator Lindsey Graham, a close ally of his. But the president and the lawyers apparently splintered on the strategy for the upcoming trial. And on Saturday night, the former president's office put out a statement saying they would no longer be representing him and they would be looking for new lawyers. And then last night, the former president announced two new lawyers. So I think having a change up in your legal team a week before the impeachment trial is, I would say, a bad sign. But what do we know about why they parted ways? Like what this difference in strategy was that was so enormous that it meant that five of the former president's lawyers decided to quit? There's certainly more of a story to come out, but the former president and his team of lawyers apparently had a disagreement on how to approach a trial. The lawyers wanted to simply argue that it's unconstitutional to impeach a former president who's already out of office and that the former president did not directly incite the violence uh, at the Capitol. Trump wanted to argue both that and also that the election was fraudulent and that he potentially still won. And the lawyers were not prepared to make claims uh, in the impeachment trial about election fraud. And that is how it was explained to us why they parted ways. It's also important to note that he didn't really know any of these lawyers. He had never met them. He took them uh, because he desperately needed lawyers and his former lawyers were not interested. Uh, And Lindsey Graham put him on the phone with these uh, folks and he made kind of a shotgun decision to hire them. Uh, he had never, never, you know, spent considerable time with any of these uh, lawyers who were going to be representing him. So why would Trump want to focus on this argument about election fraud if he's not being impeached for anything about election fraud? I mean, he's being impeached on the charge of inciting an insurrection. And so why would he want to, like, bring in this whole other, like, random argument that feels like it's over because he's not even president anymore. Because he he constantly talks about it. He tells anyone who calls him in Florida or many people that call him now in Florida that he still won the election and still is reading all sorts of articles that include conspiracy theories about uh, why he could have actually won the election. And processing loss has not been easy for him uh, here. And he's asked allies and supporters and others around him to go out and make the case that he still uh, won the election. He he knows that a lot of his base, his supporters, uh, believe that. He knows it's helped him raise an inordinate amount of money, more than $250 million since the election they've raised uh, on these claims. And it keeps him in the news and it keeps him relevant in his mind. 
And for these attorneys who have decided that they are going to part ways with President Trump and not represent him in the impeachment trial, are they concerned with the election fraud argument because they think that it will fail in the Senate and then it just won't help the former president be exonerated? Or do they have like larger ethical concerns with just like bringing up these election fraud ideas yet again in a way that could be harmful on a public stage? From what we understand, it's a mix of both. The Republican Senate conference is more comfortable with the argument about it being unconstitutional. McConnell and others have had that argument presented to senators, and there's a wide berth of support in the conference for that argument. And that would be why they would they would primarily vote against impeachment if you ask Republican senators. They're less comfortable with the argument about uh, election fraud, and a lot of the Republican senators have bag the president through Lindsey Graham and others. Don't make that argument. Let's make this open and shut uh, without getting into that. Josh Holmes, one of Mitch McConnell's uh, advisors, told me last week in an interview that, you know, everyone just wants to move on from this episode and people want this to be over. But the president will make it messy and it will not end quietly. You have a GOP in wars on a number of fronts. You have Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who has supported QAnon in the past from Georgia, who's creating all sorts of cultural wars in the conference. And you have Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy who are trying to tamp some of this down. But it doesn't seem like it will be tamped down anytime soon. So who will be representing former President Trump now? Well, he now has two lawyers. Uh, One of them uh, has represented Roger Stone, one of his longtime allies, and a number of uh, mob figures and other prominent celebrities lives in in Georgia. The second is a former prosecutor from Pennsylvania. And one of the things uh, he's famous for is choosing not to prosecute the Bill Cosby case originally. Both of them were brought into the former president through emissaries, through intermediaries. He does not, he's not known to have a close relationship with either one of them. Uh, So we will see how this iteration goes. And what do we know about how Democrats in the Senate are approaching this impeachment trial and what their arguments are going to be against President Trump? Well, we know that they want to focus on what people did right after his words. You know, granular evidence, potentially video, potentially photos, you know, lots of, of eyewitness testimony of what happened just in the moments after he went out to the ellipse outside the White House and gave uh, that fairly incendiary speech. And what they what they want to show is, in, in their estimation, what havoc he wreaked with his own words uh, and, and play that out in fairly granular detail. So what are the questions that you have going forward in this final week before the beginning of this trial? I guess my, my my questions are how involved will the former president actually be in his own defense? Uh, how will he try and use this trial to propel himself back into the news, back into uh, the public consciousness? Will any of the Republican senators surprise folks and actually vote to convict the president? We know there are a handful, Romney, Murkowski, Ben Sass, others who, who may do it, but will there be any surprise senators? And and frankly, you know, will there be any defense of the president's actual conduct? What we've seen in the past few weeks is a number of his allies and advisors essentially saying, you know, he's already out of office, so you should not convict him, you should not impeach him. And if you do vote to impeach or convict him, your poll numbers are going to go down because he is very popular in a lot of these states. What we haven't really heard is a fulsome defense of what the president actually did. And a number of the people around him say they can't give that because there isn't one. 
but will they cobble one together for the trial or not, or will it essentially be a political argument as it has been heretofore? But just to be clear, I mean, there is every indication that President Trump is not going to be convicted of these charges in the Senate. That's- he is very unlikely to be convicted. If you talk to uh, Republican, you know, senators and others on Capitol Hill, uh, they they say it will be, you know, he will miss by probably 10, 11, 12 votes. There's no expectation that he will be convicted. So then will this trial even matter? Well, that's a good question. You certainly can talk to some Democrats who say they wish they could instead move on to, you know, COVID package or move on to confirming President Biden's nominees or to move on to other issues. The flip side is, if you listen to some of the Democrats who are in charge of proceedings, um, if you don't uh, try and impeach and convict for this conduct, what precedent does that set? They say there has to be some sort of punishment for behaving in the way that the former president behaved. So what will be the repercussions of it long term? I don't know. But there are legitimate questions on you know, how much will this matter? Josh Dossie reports on politics for The Post. On Friday, Johnson & Johnson announced that they had results from their one-dose coronavirus vaccine. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. It was highly anticipated because it's one dose. It just needs refrigeration, not the special kind of cold chain that the other vaccines need to keep them stable. And they announced a more complicated result than we've seen, but a 66% effective vaccine overall in a large global trial. They showed it was effective against one of the variants that is of concern in South Africa. And they found stronger effects against severe disease, deaths, hospitalization, which are the outcomes, of course, that many people are most trying to avoid here. So 66%, obviously that's lower than the like 90 or 95% that we had been hearing about from the clinical trials from Pfizer and Moderna, the, the two vaccines that are now available in the U.S. What are we supposed to make of that? Like, does it matter that this vaccine is, it seems like, significantly less effective, at least from the number perspective? Well, we have to see all of the data, but so far what we know is that this vaccine is very effective. The bar that the FDA set this summer was 50% at least. And just think about the effect that could have right now when this pandemic is raging. If we could get a lot of doses out very quickly to help protect people, it could have a huge effect. So second of all, it's a little bit difficult to compare between trials because even though the trials were constructed similarly, they aren't the same. And they were conducted in really different situations. So Moderna and Pfizer were testing their vaccines at a different time when the virus hadn't yet created these variants that look like they're going to challenge so much of our effort to control this pandemic. So 
it was in some ways a simpler time to run those trials. And the Johnson & Johnson trial was very large and very global. So a lot of its participants were in South Africa, uh, were in Latin America, as well as the U.S. And one of the things that was interesting is that the overall effectiveness kind of reflected the different character of the pandemic in those places. It was 72% effective in the U.S., 66% in Latin America, and 57% in South Africa. So that kind of shows you that South Africa, which is where this variant originated and where it's really taken over, is more challenging for these vaccines. And I'm curious about the science behind this vaccine. I mean, we've heard a lot about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and the fact that they are made from mRNA, which is like this new sort of cutting edge technology. What about this vaccine? Is it using the same technology and does it work the same way? This is a different kind of vaccine. The other vaccines that we uh, have seen so far use genetic material to teach your cells how to make the spike protein found on the outside of the coronavirus. And this one instead uses a harmless cold virus to get a gene that codes for that same spike protein basically into the cell, instructs your cells to make the protein. So it's a different technology. Some positives, it's a more stable vaccine. So one of the things that's really tricky about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is that the genetic material they use is really labile, it's really fragile. So they have, that's why it has to be kept at these ultra-cold conditions to keep it stable. And this one can be kept in the fridge for months. So that's a huge advantage. And you can't really underestimate right now, as we're seeing all this trouble with distribution rollout, how much just easier logistics could help make this go faster. And does it look at this point like the FDA is going to approve this vaccine from Johnson & Johnson? We won't know that for a while. I mean, this is always a little bit difficult because what we have now is a press release. Obviously, that's a very kind of top line look at the data. What we're going to see happen is the company said by the end of this week, they plan to apply for emergency use authorization. So they'll be sending a huge amount of data and information to the FDA. Then the FDA will schedule a public advisory committee meeting usually, at least with the other vaccines, about three weeks later. So we're looking at probably end of February. And there'll be a a long public meeting, just a day-long meeting, where experts who are independent will debate the data, they'll unpack it, and then they'll give a recommendation to the FDA about what to do with this vaccine, whether to approve it or not. And if it follows the pattern of the past vaccines, we'll we'll probably know in a day whether or not it's, it's authorized. But A lot of people are excited to have a third vaccine, especially at this time when there are these variants that are causing a lot of worry about both being more transmissible and potentially eluding some of the immunity from some of the vaccines, so making them potentially work a little bit less well. So one of the selling points, it seems, for this vaccine candidate is the fact that it is so much easier to distribute because it is only one dose, because you don't have to keep it at super cold temperatures. But I'm wondering if we know anything about how quickly it can be manufactured. Like if it's so easy to distribute, if it does indeed get approved by the FDA, is there a world where we have a huge amount of doses that we can start giving to people pretty quickly? The company hasn't yet formally disclosed how many it'll have available day one. You know, if this is available in March, how many can they ship that first week? So 
it's hard to know on a month-to-month basis what is going to happen. We've been told by some government officials that they're slightly behind on their initial schedule. But so much in vaccine manufacturing and the ramp-up phase is uncertain. But right now, what we do know is that they've committed to sending 100 million doses to the U.S. by the end of June. That would definitely help, you know, whether it's going to, in the month of March, change the number of people we can vaccinate by some amount. We don't yet know a solid number for that. I'm also curious about the demand for this vaccine, because I think so many people will be hyper-focused on this number of, like, what percent effective it is. And if it is, in fact, 66 percent versus something like 95 percent, is there a world where people are looking at this and being like, I don't want this vaccine, the, like, lesser, less effective one. Like, I want to hold out for the 95 percent one. People are really worried about that already worried that people are going to want to shop around. Equally, you might get people who don't want to come back for a second dose who want the easier one. So what we are going to see is more data that should be reassuring to people that it's going to be carefully looked at both by the FDA and also a committee that advises the CDC will look at it and say, is there evidence we should give this preferentially to people in a different group? Should we give lower risk people this vaccine. But I think a complicating factor here and a reason you just can't cross compare the numbers is that we don't know if the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine would be 90 to 95 percent effective in the world that we're seeing emerge right now, where there are these variants, where the the outbreak is just a lot more complex and the virus is kind of more tricky (laughs) and stealthy. I would also say that like something that I know the public health officials are kind of stressing is the protection against severe disease is very good for all these vaccines. And if if we could turn this disease into something that didn't kill people, that would also have a ton of value. So yes, people are very worried about how they're going to communicate the value of the vaccine. There's going to be people who will just say, I want want the one that's closer to 100%. But there are a lot of other things to consider. And frankly, If it can speed up uh, sort of the distribution part, maybe it's the difference between waiting for a lower risk person, waiting for several months or waiting for fewer months. And that also has a value. So if you were to get this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, would that mean that you would not be eligible to get like a Pfizer or a Moderna later? In the short term, there won't be enough vaccine. So I don't think it's going to be like people doubling and tripling up on vaccine doses. We're way behind the supply we need for the world. And so it will be kind of a tragedy if like Americans end up getting multiple different vaccines just because they think it might be more protective. Second, there isn't going to be yet evidence of how the vaccines interact, but there are studies planned to look at whether you could boost one vaccine with another Um, And these are going to become more and more relevant as we talk about developing second versions of the vaccine that are tailored against the South African variant. Because you could foresee a situation where you get one vaccine and you get boosted with another. Maybe that helps. But we we still have to test that. What I also think is so interesting about all the different decisions and factors that are being weighed by scientists and also doctors and also individuals who are thinking about which vaccine they want to say yes to is that in some ways it feels like it's important for people to remember that this isn't only about them and their own immunity against 
this virus, that having more people vaccinated more quickly helps everybody. And that in some ways there's like a need to prioritize like providing the best herd immunity situation versus people holding out for what they think is like the higher effectiveness vaccine. Like if it's going to help more people around you, then that is also an argument for having a wider pool of vaccines that work in different ways and can be more effective in different scenarios. Yeah, someone put it to me this way. They said, you know, if if we didn't have a population, there wouldn't be a pandemic. So even though everyone's always thinking about their individual level of protection, we have to think about how we can protect ourselves, not just as in, you know, putting a shield of immunity around yourself. But if we can get more people vaccinated, that also helps protect you. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing about the weird niche economy of owl pellets. When an owl eats something, it typically swallows it whole. And after the digestion process, there's a whole bunch of undigestible stuff left over, fur and bone typically. That is Chris Ingram. And I'm a reporter on the business desk, and I report on all sorts of strange and interesting things involving data. This might be, this might have been a mouse. Oh, you can just pull it apart. Whoa, I have a lot of bones on the bottom. I wish you just what kind of gloves. bones do you see? I wish you just I just see teeth. I see the jaw bones. Mm. I wouldn't get like so much. It, it's okay. It's completely clean. Chris started getting interested in owl pellets when he saw his kids working on an at-home ecology kit. In an era of virtual schooling, dissecting owl pellets from a kit was meant as this hands-on way to teach them all about anatomy. And it's kind of a fun, gross project that kids really get into. And I was home working one day and I heard them, you know, outside in the driveway kind of talking all excitedly. Um, And I saw that they were doing owl pellets and I was like, huh. And I started thinking about, well, where do they come from? Like, how does an owl pellet make its way from the forest floor to my kid's classroom table? There's an owl pellet supply chain. Like we think of supply chains for things like food and toilet paper and all kinds of consumer goods. There's also a supply chain for owl pellets. And the way it typically works is, you know, an owl puke something on the forest floor somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. And there are each of these little mom and pop companies, most of them contract with anywhere from 25 to 50 people who just go out and hunt owl pellets. And they, they go to these places that they know where their owls are and they, you know, they, they collect the pellets they can find and they bring them back to the companies and they get paid piecemeal anywhere from 25 cents to a dollar per pellet, depending on size and quality. And, you know, there, there, there are good owl pellets and bad owl pellets. And so after the collectors have brought these pellets to these companies, what they do then is they they clean them and they grade them and they you know they sanitize them they get cooked in high heat to destroy any bacteria and then they are ready to be shipped out and these companies they have customers ranging from parents who just want something to do with their kids on a weekend 
to huge museums and school districts and libraries. So just like any other e-commerce item, you know, in, in the American economy, you can really sell pretty much anything. And uh, owl pellets are a great example of that. This pellet? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my, my, my owl might have been a, a barn owl. Chris Ingram is a reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And we are always around to listen to you. If you've got thoughts about a story on today's show, we want to hear them. Share them on Twitter with the hashtag PostReports, join our Facebook group, or email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 